Well, friends, it's good to be with you. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, it's my joy to be one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad you're in worship, both here in the room and online. And I'm going to hand over the iPad to Kara because she's going to preach too. Oh, my gosh. Like, what can't she do? My goodness. Yeah, my goodness. Uh, please save some talent for the rest of us, please. We, we need it. We need it. Oh, that was incredible. Uh, I wonder if you've heard the phrase, can you complete it for me? Revenge is a dish best served cold. That's right. Revenge. This is a major theme in movies, in music, even in sports. This year, recently, both John Wick 4 and The Equalizer 3 came out. Probably more Keanu Reeves than you thought you were going to get at church today. <laughs> These are entire film franchises built on revenge. Liam Neeson, especially late career Liam Neeson, his whole career is movies like this. His latest movie is called Retribution. They're not even trying to get creative anymore. What about Carrie Underwood's Before He Cheats, Kelly Clarkson's Since You Be Gone, and Carly Simon's You're So Vain? What do they have in common? <laughs> Very singable, aren't they? <laughs> Two things in common. They all were top ten hits, and they all are about revenge. We even see the revenge narrative play out in sports. Why was it that the play of the game last week against the Dolphins was so sweet? Because we stripped Tyreek of the ball and gave him a little taste of what he's missing since he left Kansas City. Was I the only one screaming my head off and for, for less than noble reasons, right? Take that, Tyreek. We love those narratives. Why are movies about revenge, songs about revenge, are these revenge narratives in sports? Why are they so popular? I think it's because we either can't have revenge or we haven't gotten the opportunity yet, and so we live vicariously through them. That's my theory, because we love it. And if I can't do it, at least I can join with Kelly in singing about it. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. This instinct for revenge is understandable, but it's unhelpful. Author and pastor Steve Cuss he cites unforgiveness as a significant source of anxiety. Have you ever played out a heated argument in your mind with someone? Isn't it funny how we always win those too? Like you never play it out in your head and you're like, oh, they got me again. No. We, we always tear them up. Or, or have you ever imagined that this person who has harmed you in some way suffering themselves? Mm, taking a turn, aren't we? Steve Cuss calls these anger fantasies. And he says anger fantasies are insidious because they feel so good and they are the natural way for your brain to make sense of your emotions. But they are dangerous because you can indulge it without ever having to really engage the person. Rather than deal with the situation, instead, we choose to brood. Right? I wish brooding were a spiritual gift. I could lead a conference on brooding. But it isn't. So where has all the brooding gotten us? What have we gained with any time spent entertaining anger fantasies? What do we do with our unforgiveness? I've learned in my life that unforgiveness is a significant source of anxiety. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Starting last week and then this week and the following week, we're going to be focusing on our sermon series called The Anxiety Antidote. 
And every week we want to draw the difference between sources of anxiety and the, and the scope of anxiety we're discussing and the medical diagnosis of anxiety. Those are separate things. We're going to be dealing with anxiety as defined by pastor and author Jack Shatama. He said anxiety, in our sense, is an inability to deal with uncertainty and the desire to control outcomes that is driven by fear of failure. So our exploration of the Bible is not meant to detract from any medical or behavioral professionals. And so if, if, if clinical anxiety is something you struggle with, we're not saying here at church, ah, forget all that, just try harder or pray more. No, that's not the takeaway, friends. What we want to do with this series is to address sources of anxiety and explore how our faith helps us approach them and live the abundant life that Jesus calls us to, what he wants to provide for us. This week, our anxiety is unforgiveness, and our anxiety antidote is to weigh the cost of unforgiveness. Towards the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is giving his, some of his final words to his disciples. Matthew is one of the four biographies of Jesus that, that tell the story of his relatively anonymous birth, of his violent death, and his unexpected rising. This scene known as the Last Supper, what we're going to read from, was Jesus revealing how his life would soon end in one way and in another way not end. And so he uses the occasion of a meal to demonstrate the mystery of his dying on the cross and his rising three days later. First, Jesus tells the disciples that the bread that they're eating represents his body, which will soon be broken and then in Matthew 26, we read, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you and for, excuse me, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. When I was a pastor in St. Louis, I worked with a youth residential facility in Webster Groves, if that means anything to you. It's, it's called Epworth. And I had gotten special permission to go serve communion to the kids we worked with. This was a place where kids who had a lot of challenges, who had been given, uh, that they had been dealt a bad hand, they lived at this facility. So we kind of made a youth group there and we called it chapel. And so I got special permission to go share communion at chapel and I was so excited and we had an awesome time. They laughed at all our jokes, they sang and it was time for communion. And I gave them the big speech, the communion speech and not a single one of them came up and took communion. They were like, I'm not touching blood. Right? They're like, well, I'm, I'm not doing that. And, and I think this, this imagery of, of blood can be confusing, maybe even scary. What did Jesus mean when he said the cup was like his blood? The word blood occurs 74 times in the New Testament. That's the second half of the Bible. In the, in the first half of the Bible, called the Old Testament, it occurs 218 times. Often, in the Old Testament, blood occurs in the text in relation to purity laws, or, or what to do with the blood of animals, and how blood plays a role in the sacrificial system. The Old Testament, when you read it, it can be very brutal, and I think that's because it reflects the brutal time in which it was written. And so Leviticus 17, there's a verse we're going to read that is just really crucial in terms of understanding the emphasis on blood in the Old Testament. 
verse 11 of chapter 17 of Leviticus. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And this is God saying, I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. In an agricultural society thousands of years ago when this was written, your livestock was everything. It was precious to you. And so a system of sacrifices was set up in order for God to help people understand that sin has a consequence, that it had a cost, that forgiveness costs you, sin costs you something. So much later after Leviticus, another part of the Bible summarizes this concept really well. This is from Hebrews chapter 9. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So this entire system of rules and sacrifices to demonstrate forgiveness was for uh, when laws were broken, this whole system of what you were supposed to do and then what you do after you break it, that's collectively referred to as the law. And the law was part of the covenant that God made with God's people. One example of covenantal language is when God is, is, is beginning a covenant with the Israelites after they leave Egypt. Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt and God says to them, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And then later in, in Leviticus, but if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands, and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. So a covenant is a relational agreement between two parties. Mutual promises being made. In this case, God promised to lead Israel to be their God, and Israel promises to be obedient. And much of the law was prescriptions for how to atone for sin. In other words, how to demonstrate repentance um, and, and how to receive forgiveness. How to be made, once again, at one with God, to atone. A lot of the first half of the Bible is this cycle, and it's, and it's a covenant being received, and then people reject God's ways. They also, I made them all start with R, by the way. You're going to love that. A covenant is received, then the people reject it, and they're disobedient, and then there's a reckoning. They suffer consequences because of their disobedience. Then they repent. They want to turn back to God. Then God rescues them, and then there's reconciliation with God. You can see this pattern in the first half of the Bible and probably in our lives over and over and over. And on and on the cycle went. And so God knew that the sacrificial system couldn't save people, that we needed something more. That's why understanding the role of blood in the sacrificial system is crucial to what Jesus is doing when he institutes what we now call communion. That's why understanding how the law was related to the covenant people were making with God is important. Because for over a thousand years, people operated this way, trying to be faithful to God and failing. And I'm convinced God did this because it took us a thousand years to see that we can't save ourselves on our own. There's a verse in Romans that sums this up really well. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And so we first needed to understand how short we fall 
of God's holiness in order to understand we need a savior. And this is why what Jesus did at the Last Supper was so significant. That's why it's lasted 2,000 years. Because he is instituting a new covenant, a new sort of relationship. Under the old covenant, when you sinned, you had to make atonement with God by offering sacrifices. And so your standing with God depended on what you were providing for God. Under the new covenant, your standing with God is now dependent on what God has done for you based on the gift of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. So in the New Testament, an author of a book called Hebrews first is going to quote the Old Testament, and then he's going to talk about how that was fulfilled. And so this is the string, the thread, that ties the whole scripture together. We're going to read a quote from the book of Jeremiah, who lived under the Old Covenant, and said, For I will forgive their wickedness. He's predicting what God is saying. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And then the author is saying, this is now fulfilled in Jesus. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And so the sacrifice offered in this new covenant is Jesus himself, who offers his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. Then we read in Hebrews, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, He entered the most holy place. That's where priests would go to offer sacrifices. He entered the most holy place, Jesus did, once for all time and secured our redemption forever. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. This is why forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian faith. God doesn't count our sins against us anymore when we receive what Christ offers us. We don't receive the punishment for our sins. We don't have to pay the consequences. The problem then is when we want the benefits of the new covenant for us, but want to see everybody else pay. And there it is. That unforgiveness can burn almost like a pilot light within us. This anxiety of unresolved conflict or things that are out of our control or there's a failure to see people suffer the way they've made us suffer. And so I wonder, what has unforgiveness cost you? Time, energy, sleep, well-being, Has anxiety over unforgiveness caused you to miss out on memories with friends or family because they were going to be there? So let me clearly define what I am and am not saying about forgiveness. I'm not saying forgiveness is easy or quick. I don't think pithy sayings like forgive and forget are helpful. I don't think forgiveness is pretending like nothing ever happened. Here's how I would define forgiveness. Releasing your right to revenge. It doesn't change the past, but you're letting go of that instinct to see them be paid back. To put away the anger fantasies. To quit the petty payback stuff. You're forfeiting your desire, which is understandable, 
your desire to see them get what they deserve, you're giving that up. And so in that way, it does cost you a lot. You're giving up your desire to see the other person suffer like they made you suffer. This journey of being forgiven by God and then extending that forgiveness to others is one that every Christian goes on. Forgiveness is at the heart of the Christian faith. In his excellent book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, pastor and author Steve Cuss, he describes some physical symptoms that we feel when this anxiety creeps up. And so I wonder, when it comes to unforgiveness, if you've felt any of these. A spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening body. Maybe that lump in your throat or a knot in your stomach. This is rhetorical, of course, but I wonder which is your favorite. I experience a bit of a buffet, a little bit of all of them from time to time. If it's, if it's right before bed, spinning mind on the pillow, man. Or if, if maybe it's in the moment and there's, there's some unresolved tension or unforgiveness, like in real time, I'll, I'll get a, a racing heart. Or if I'm thinking about a conversation I should have or, or again, some situation that's unresolved and I'm thinking about it in, in advance of it happening, that's when the body tightens up. When we suffer these things, we continue to pay the cost of unforgiveness. Friends, is it worth it? No. Whatever it was that injured us, as long as we have unforgiveness, it goes on in perpetuity. And I have heard this compared to being like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Unforgiveness is like ingesting poison and then hoping the other person dies. Friends, the good news is forgiveness doesn't have to do with the other person at all. It's you releasing your right to revenge. Last week we talked about differentiation. This is sorting out where we end and another person begins. It's, it's defining, it's drawing a line between our emotions, actions, and responsibilities and their emotions, actions, and responsibilities. When we forgive, we're giving up our right to revenge. And you can do that independent of this other person. They don't even have to know about it. We're no longer letting that person's past, current, or future actions dictate ours. We can differentiate our desire to see them suffer from any of their actions at all. And the only way, in my experience, that this is possible is when we begin to let God's Spirit change us as we view forgiveness in light of the new covenant. When we realize how much we've been forgiven ourselves, it's only then that the Spirit can begin to change our desires so that we release other people from our desire for revenge. Jesus once said of, of someone who gave him a, a lavish welcome, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. When we understand the great love that Jesus displayed for us and the forgiveness that we've experienced, then we can begin to extend a shred of that back to other people. When we consider the great cost that Jesus paid on our behalf for the forgiveness of sins, when we weigh the cost of unforgiveness, friends, we're freed to choose to forgive as we have been forgiven. And everybody said, amen.